You are listening to History Man, a project of ekbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we're with Aaron Kepley again from Rowan Museum Incorporated, and we're going to talk about Salisbury, North Carolina, and uh, specifically our topic for the day is the Spanish and the Indians and the, uh, the first written records of uh, European interaction with the Indians. So thank you, Aaron, for sitting down with us. Always a pleasure. Before we start, we want to acknowledge a couple of our partners in this podcast, uh, Long Gone LLC in Camden, South Carolina, specializes in historic tours in the oldest continuous inland city of South Carolina. You can find them on Facebook at Long Gone LLC. We also want to recognize the Cultural and Heritage Museums of York County, South Carolina, including the Southern Revolutionary War Institute, and of course, our friends at southerncampaign1780.org. Aaron, we want to, uh, we, we've talked on previous episodes about the Great Wagon Road and how that literally was Indian paths and war paths prior to that. What was the first European connection to this community, and when was it? Depends on exactly how you define this community, because if you go back to our founding in 1753 and how big the county was, technically we can take that back to the 1540s when Hernando de Soto came up into North, through South Carolina into North Carolina. Okay. He didn't come to Salisbury, though. He came to a town called Joara, which is near the mountains near Morganton, North Carolina today. And he stayed there for a, a while. Uh, and they, they know that he stayed there for a while because they found things like pig bones and things uh, that Native Americans would not have had at that time in this area. Did he create a fort in Morganton? It wasn't Hernando de Soto. Okay. We'll, we'll get to the okay. fort in All a little right. bit. Okay. Yeah. All right. De Soto then left, moved across the mountains, and uh, went on to fight the different uh, Mississippian chiefdoms and die in the Mississippi River and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we go dark here in North Carolina in terms of Native American records, for a period of about 20 years. In 1567, Juan Pardo makes his way out of uh, Santa Elena, which is now, I believe, on the golf course at Paris Island. Uh, I forget exactly which hole. It might be the ninth hole on Paris is that Island. Right? Okay. That, that's where Santa Elena, the Spanish fort is, the archaeological site. Yeah, He makes his way out of there and uh, moves up to the Watery River and starts to encounter Mississippian chiefdoms as he is coming up. Uh, the watery into the Catawba River. And uh, one of the first places he comes to and meets a big chieftain is a town called Coffita Chequay or Canos, depending on which record. And I believe that's right near Camden, South Carolina. There is a, uh, there's a big uh, statue of King Hagler from the Catawba Nations uh, in downtown Camden as we speak. Well, Catawba Nation was... Held huge swaths of land from here uh, in North Carolina, Morganton, all the way down to Camden, and and even some eastward of that too. And so the the people that Pardo is meeting, they're not quite calling themselves the Catawba yet, okay. But they are a Suan speaking language group, okay. So and these people would eventually become the Catawba. I see. He makes his way further up the Catawba Valley to that town called Joara that DeSoto had been at, okay. And that's where he built a fort and leaves a garrison of men there, and then makes his way east, almost directly east across North Carolina to the area that's now Salisbury. We don't know exactly where he went, but he uh, came here to this area and met with a female chief of a town called Watari, 
And Watari. Yes, Watari. We'll get to that in a minute as well. <laughs> and as he's as he's meeting with her, she brings in thirty nine lesser chiefs to meet with him here. Okay. Now she is very interested in the Christian religion. So he leaves his chaplain at, at Salisbury. He spends about two weeks at Watari. And he leaves his chaplain whenever he goes back towards Santa Elena because they were worried about a French attack on Santa Elena. And he makes his way back down to towards the coast. The chaplain is here for about six months with his uh, assistant and actually teaches the Native Americans uh, the different feast days of the week, teaches them how to say the prayers in Latin, and uh, teaches them some Spanish. He, he's getting them to not eat meat on Fridays, as Catholics have uh, traditionally done. He is actually starting the process of converting Native Americans. They're also doing things like mining during this time. The Spanish have uh, a lot of records of different gem mines in between Salisbury and Morganton, places like Hidden Night today. There's actually records in uh, Madrid of the uh, original Spanish finder of those places. So technically, you know, they might owe a little bit of money back to a Spanish family of a conquistador because they actually put claim to that back then. But so during this six months when this priest is here, like I say, he's doing all this teaching and everything, but he's getting so popular with the Indians, they start doing things like carrying him around on a litter on their shoulders Word gets back to Pardo that this is happening, and Pardo gets jealous. So he sends a messenger inland and says, if you don't come out, I'm going to come in there and I'm going to hang you <laughs> from a tree. So uh, the the Spanish uh, chaplain comes out, and uh, we go dark for again for just a little bit, though, because 1568, Pardo comes back in. He goes to Juara. They have to fight some battles out there. They build a couple forts, one as far west as the Pigeon River in Tennessee. Uh, with, which would be you know modern-day Cherokee country. Then he comes back across uh, straight east to Qatari again. And while he's here, he builds a star fort. It's the only fort that they describe, and they describe it as an earthen star fort, much like I, I imagine it to look much like what St. Augustine looks like, just instead of being made out of rock, it's made out of dirt. Where is that fort? Right beside that Spanish church, and we have no real good grasp on where that is unfortunately wow we have found joara joara is a uh, recorded archaeological site but watari is is not yet we would love to find it though because that like i say that is the first that we know of spanish mission in the interior of, the, of what is now the united states so pardo after building the fort leaves some men there makes his way back down to the coast again because he fears a another attack from the French. He, he leaves in February, I believe, and the soldiers start doing things like uh, demanding food from the Native Americans and also taking liberties with Native American women, which is not very popular with the Native American men. Uh, so by May or June... A single soldier from Joara, which is the fort near Morganton, stumbles his way into Santa Elena. Every single Spanish fort that had been built, every single Spanish soldier except for him, had been killed. It just all the best archaeologists and historians could tell it happened just bam, just like that. 
So it's like they rose up against them? They rose up against them all at once, put them all down. They left one survivor who came back to Santa Elena and said, never come back. That was the message. And uh, so we go dark for a little while, between 1568 uh, and to the mid-1600s. And during that time period, we do know some things were happening because of recorded Native American conversations with Spanish. Uh, they're talking about places like Coffa de Chequay, the place near Camden gets mentioned. It's in decline. Uh, and, you know, the Spanish don't really go in there to see it or anything, but they, they hear that it's in decline. It's not doing well. Um, Joara, yeah, as actually mentioned, Watari is not mentioned again. Do we know what they attribute that to? Well, or, or can we just speculate that it might have been disease? It could be disease, but the first great epidemic that is recorded in the South is the smallpox epidemic of 1696 or 1698. Okay. And so, you know, this is after all yeah. that, all, all this. And it, it seems like just different power is being shifted around in the backcountry. I see. I see. And in the early 1600s, a lot of that can be attributed to the Native American slave trade. Really? People are... Uh, I guess you call them at this point tribes and not necessarily villages or you know, confederations of villages uh, are like the Westos who were seemed to be eerie Native Americans from you know, New York uh, were defeated by the, by the Iroquois and were forced to move south. And they had been used to trading beaver pelts with Europeans for guns and all that, you know, European trade goods. So they come south and we don't necessarily have the beaver but we do have one thing that people around Jamestown and also the Sugar Islands want, which is Native American slaves. So the Westo Native Americans start to make their way down into North Carolina, along with tribes like the Okanichi, and they start to slave raid these Suwon-speaking people that live in uh, the Piedmont of North Carolina. Joara is heavily affected by this. It seems like they move to near... Salem, Winston-Salem during this time period, the Sara Mountains is probably named after Joara, the Joara people, Sara. And where, where are the Sara Mountains? So, Sara Mountains are near, uh, they're in between Winston-Salem and Greensboro. Okay. Yeah, All so right. you know, they move from Morganton, which is pretty far to the west. They move up there, probably hoping that the mountains will kind of keep them safe. But they have so many issues, they end up moving down to Sharal. And so Joara, Sara, Sharal. I got you. Yeah. And the uh, the Watari is not really mentioned, but we know that they were heavily impacted by this as well. Now, there are a few expeditions that come through that have spotty records that talk about some different villages, but really things, the, the one enlightening thing that comes back around is in 1701 when John Lawson comes through here. Comes up from South Carolina, which at that time was just Carolina, mm -hmm. but he comes up and comes across, and as he is moving through South Carolina, though, he comes to near Camden, and he runs into a tribe that he calls the Watery, and that is the Guatari. They had recently moved to the area around Camden because of the great smallpox epidemic and the slaving that was happening. The smallpox epidemic started around Petersburg and came down what is now the I-85 corridor. And that would have hit Watari. It would have hit, you know, the Catawba nations uh, that are around Charlotte and Rock Hill and made its way on down into all these other areas. And the, the, with the slaving that was going on, the, 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 
the watery had to get away. So they moved from their homeland on the Yakin River down to uh, the area around Camden, and they get the wrong river named after them, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, the Yakin River should actually be the Watery River. Wow. Yes. That is, that is interesting. Yes. Because you, you think, uh, as a modern-day pauper of history that I am, uh, there is a tendency to think, oh, well, the Cherokee have always been here. The Watery have always been here. The, you know, and, and you go on and on. The Iroquois have always been there in that one area up north. That's just not the way it is at all. Not at all. Not I mean, at all. They're, they're moving. They're 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 trying to survive when those geopolitics well, played into Indian life as well. You also have to look at things like uh, soil exhaustion. I'm sorry. Soil exhaustion. Soil exhaustion. Yes. yes. Because as you're planting corn and things like that, you know, repeated planting of corn, any crop, if you plant it repeatedly, is going to exhaust the soil. Right. So it's not just a human problems. It's environment problems. Yeah. And, interesting. And a, another thing that I have heard from archaeologists, Native Americans only wanted to carry firewood up to a mile from a village. So if they cleaned out the woods of firewood from a mile around the village, you know, in every direction, it was time to move to a different place. Kind of throws a, a little kink in, uh, in some Native American legal actions where they claim that this particular section of the country was theirs and always was theirs and God had given it to them and this is the land of the you know this particular Indian tribe with the I think you can you could pull that back not just Native Americans I think you can pull that back to the greater human experience isn't that true no no that is so true yeah no human population has ever really lived in one place you talked about the German people uh being you know just from a religious standpoint they would move from the the west the eastern part of France over into Germany if they were a particular if Protestant they were a Protestant Catholic, right yeah. so yeah. isn't that interesting and and one one kind of to sum this all up it's not too long after John Lawson that you start hearing the Esau the Watery the all these different tribes start to call themselves by another name the Catawba the what what happened. The reason why we have the tribes that we have today is largely due to the shattering of their societies that happened after European contact with Native American slaving, which happens first, the slave trade. And that is one reason why 85 is such a big corridor that it is today is because of the Native American slave trade. And that Native American slave trade, you're talking... You're talking between Native American tribes. Well, they they were they would trade between each other and then sell to the Europeans. I see. Okay. Yes, All yes. Right. The the end. The I guess you know you have the the uh, the buying going on. John Lawson actually witnesses this. I forgot to say this, but he actually witnesses this at the trading ford here at the Yakin River. Um, a group is brought in uh, and is being traded while he is staying with a group here at the trading port on the Yakin River. So he, he, he's actually witnessing this as it's happening. And by that point in the 1700s, it was getting more rare because African slave trade was picking up more. But it, it's still something, you know, the Native Americans are still trying to trade to get European trade goods and things like that, and that was still a commodity. Boy, that an interesting story. Yeah, so the Cherokee, the Catawba, all of the major tribes come about and in their locations, largely due to slave trade, and then the the the, the shattering due to the slave trade, 
and also the shattering due to the smallpox epidemics. Uh, Jared Diamond has a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel, and he talks about that same phenomenon where you have uh, more powerful groups come in with uh, advanced weaponry, and then you have the germs that come along with that, and then with the advent of steel uh, and guns, gunpowder. One thing that really shows that is the way Native American society changes from a chiefdom base uh, because especially around here with the Mississippian chiefdoms, which had a very powerful central figure. Okay. And he, he is owed loyalty, and he is owed corn. He controls the agriculture and stuff like that. Right. Well, whenever you, can, whenever you need trade goods, you now need warriors who can go out and fight and control deer pelts, uh, beaver pelts, wh- whatever the commodity is that you, you are able to trade. It really weakens the power of these chiefdoms to the point that we, we they regress back to the woodland period where they're very decentralized and these warriors and things like that have much more power than the chief because uh, the power is no longer derived from agriculture. The power is now derived from material goods. Tell our listeners a little bit about... Uh some of the things that you have coming up in the museum. Well, one thing that I have coming up on June 12th is the uh, an anniversary of the 240th Race to the Dan. COVID-19 kind of made it to where we couldn't celebrate the actual anniversary, which is, uh, I believe, February, early February of 1781 is when uh, Grain and Cornwallis actually came through Salisbury in their famous chase after cowpens that, that ended at Guilford Courthouse. Um, so we decided... We would try to have something in June, and it looks like we're actually going to be able to open it up and do what we want to do. And there will be uh, all of the reenactor units that were at Camden, I've been told, are going to be at my event at the Old Stone House in Granite Quarry on June 12th. And we're going to do different battle scenarios that would have been things that happened during the Southern Campaign on this uh, chase, artillery firing demonstrations. Um, it's just going to be a great day, and I invite anybody to come on out. How would they reach you? How, if they were interested in that, how would they reach you? Well, you can go to rowanmuseum.org and click on events, or... Spell that. Oh, R-O-W-A-N-M-U-S-E-U-M.org, and then click on events, or like us on Facebook. Um, and I think it's at Rowan Museum. And, yeah, if you want to come out, we would love to have you, and we'd love to see you that day. I know it's going to be a great event, and you you compared it to the one in Camden. I know Camden grows and grows every year as uh, interest leading up to our uh, 250th anniversary of the Revolutionary War is coming up soon. This is a great prelude to that, and I'm sure our listeners would love to, to see that happen or participate in that. So thank you so much. Appreciate it, Aaron. Thank you for having me again. I, I definitely appreciate it. All right.